we left Esau at, at a place of anger and, and wrath toward his brother, his brother who in his mind had stolen his birthright for a pot of red stew, his brother who in his mind had deceived and manipulated him out of his, his true blessing of his father as the firstborn should be the inheritor of the blessing, though he had given away all of his belongings for a pot of stew, he still wanted a blessing from his father, but, but instead Jacob had, had robbed him of that in his mind. And so Esau determines to murder his brother. And of course, the scheming of, uh, of Esau in this process um, uh, is, is caught or captured by his mother, Rebecca. Rebecca comes and tells Jacob, here's the plan. The, the plan is for you to flee. Jacob then, uh, or Rebecca then goes to Jacob and sort of plants in his mind, um, maybe your son should go and find a wife from the homeland because the wives that Esau have found have been a grief to our heart. And though there's truth in that, there's, there's the constant tendrils of human control. Now, we already established last week that though Isaac was the son of promise and the seed of blessing, though Isaac started his faith journey well when he marched up Mount Moriah at 20 or 21 years old and yielded himself in his strength to his elderly father, allowed himself to be bound and tied and, and, and prepared to be slaughtered before the Lord, willingly giving himself as a sacrifice. And thus Abraham's faith was complete and Isaac's faith begins. And that wonderful mountaintop victory of Isaac um, is an overshadow of the narrative that leads to Isaac's early years, the first 40 years of his life when he's a meditator in the field. He's walking with God. He's trusting God. He's praying for his spouse. God sends uh, through Abraham, Abraham's um, messenger, his unnamed servant, to find a wife. Isaac's prayer life is pointed and poignant as we see that. As he's preparing to receive his wife, he receives her, loves her, is comforted after his mother's death. And then the, the introduction to their life together as the promised seed is one of Isaac's good leadership. His wife is barren and he prays for restoration. He prays for conception and God indeed does bless her. But chapter 26 chronologically occurs before chapter 25. And that 20 years of, of intermittent waiting finds Isaac stumbling in his leadership and faltering in his faith. Isaac's leadership uh, showcases a heart that though he wants God's blessing and though he understands he is the child of blessing, he is leading his family again uh, by his own whims in some sense. We find Isaac um, favoring one child over another. So much so that the blessing that the angel of the Lord pronounces to his wife is not something he's willing to listen to. And he goes against that blessing and it determines in his heart to bless Esau over Jacob. And, and the this is why the story is so convoluted in our minds. Because we, we see, we look at how the text describes Esau. We know he's a fornicator. We know he deserves uh, the, the punishment that he gets. We know he was interested in only the pleasure of a moment and the satisfaction of his desires instantly. This is why he heaps up for himself uh, wives um, and, and why he even in his own manipulation takes a wife from Ishmael thinking, well, this will make mom and dad happy because remember, I'm only thinking in the moment. But we also see Jacob uh, willfully going along with his mother's uh, manipulation. And of course, his mother um, is justifying in her mind, my husband isn't leading properly, so somebody's got to lead the home and family right. And so she determines to do the right thing in her mind and comes up with an elaborate scheme to decorate his body with his, her son's body with goat skin, to clothe him with her, her, uh, her other son's clothes so he smells like the field and feels like a hairy man. And the whole story is a disaster of monumental proportions. And so as we, as we walk through the mud of sin, we realize as we've gotten to the heart of Genesis that our theme is, is clear and prevalent. Sin destroys. Sin destroys the heart of good and, and godly men and women 
who want to do right. Sin decimates families by pitting siblings together and uh, showing favoritism in the, in the home. Sin destroys when, when, uh, when you're determined to get what you want in your way instead of patiently wait for God's way. Sin destroys. But the overarching message God delivers cannot be missed in the life of Jacob. And though we see the, the actions and the attitudes of Jacob, thus uh, for sure a willing participant, but also along for the ride, you know, some would say, well, Jacob, he had it coming. He was a manipulator. He was a deceiver. Actually, the text highlights Esau's problems more than Jacob's. But to be sure, Jacob's passivity when it came to his mother's plan uh, incriminates him as well. And so when we get to chapter 29, what, what is the unfolding of chapters 29 and 30 in the grand scheme or the highlight of chapter 28, verses 10 to the end of the chapter? In this, in this beautiful memorial of God meeting with him and saying, sharing his sovereignty and the angels, the messengers going up and down this ladder and, and Jacob actually knowing, surely the Lord is in this place. And how awesome is this place? It's none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. And Jacob assumes that God is only in one spot and one location. And yet he has not, he has not yet learned the lesson that Genesis has already told us, that our God is an omnipresent God. Our God is an all-powerful God. Our God has a plan far better than our own manipulations, machinations, and scheming. And human determination is not enough to receive God's blessing. In fact, God's blessing does not come based on man's manipulation. God's blessing, as we've seen already in Genesis, comes based on his sovereign action. And so sin destroys, but God delivers. The seed that would, be, uh, the, the, would deal the death blow to Satan and sin and would deliver all of mankind, the universal offer of that seed for the salvation of all men would now be revealed through this lineage. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God's determined will to bless Jacob should be a turning point in Jacob's life, yet Jacob is still on a journey of decision. And I, I see an identifier with Jacob in so many of us as believers today. We know God's promises. We just read in Revelation chapter 5, the quintessential worship section of the book of Revelation. It is the, and I, I imagine uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 as sort of the, the comic book pop-up. You know, it's sort of like the thoughts or the actions that are happening in heaven before all hell breaks loose on earth, okay? It's uh, Revelation 4 and 5 is sort of what is, what is occurring in heaven right before seal number one opens up. Chapter 6 begins seal number one and the eruption of war, famine, pestilence, uh, despair, destruction, battle of Gog and Magog, midpoint of the tribulation, the abomination of desolations, the beast, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet declaring themselves God in the middle of Jerusalem, his two prophets coming and preaching boldly, calling fire down from heaven and consuming uh, those that would not follow them, earthquakes and tsunamis and, and meteorites falling from the earth and wars uh, falling to the earth and water turning decimate to blood and fish dying and crops being burned up. And all of this is happening, but right before, there's a God sitting on the throne with a scroll in his hand. And there's only one worthy to take it, and even one worthy to even look at it. It is the Lion of Judah, Amen. the Lamb of God. That, my friends, is God's sovereign plan. But notice the Lion of Judah comes from the seed of Jacob. And unfortunately, when we, when we look at this story, we can get lost in the story and we begin to try to decide which one of these was the most moral, which one of these decisions was better than the other decision, which one was right, 
I mean, after all, was Jacob right? Was Laban right? Was Leah the better? Was, was Rachel the better? And, you know, what about Bilhah and, and you know, um, however you say her name, Zillah, Zilpah? And, and the answer is none of them. All of them are sinners. All of them have gone their own way. All of them have each turned to his or her own way. And all of them needed Yahweh to lay upon himself their iniquity. Psalm 53, 6. And so when we walk through the story, I don't think it's helpful for us to cast blame on a particular person or to say, well, this person is more moral than this person. Because what we end up doing is we walk away from the story and we try to emulate sinners who are walking in sin. Paul put it this way to the Corinthian believers, comparing yourselves among yourselves, you are not wise. You see, friends, when we fall into the trap of comparing ourselves with other sinners, then we fall into the trap of moral relativism. Well, I'm relativistically more moral than so-and-so because I've never done this, this, and this. If you've sinned once, you've broken all of God's law. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages or payment of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Yeshua son of David, son of Judah, son of Leah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. And so friends, as we look at the story, my goal is not necessarily to sort out all the ins and outs for you. I hope that as we walk away from the story, we don't walk away and say, boy, I, I, I'm, I would like to be like Jacob here. Or, boy, I think Laban had it, had it going on over here. You know, Leah, she's the one to emulate. Or Rebecca, wow, we really need to throw her under the bus. Uh, you know, Rachel, she, she had some real problems that I don't... You know what? All of them had problems. And we're going to try to point those out along the way. But the point is, we aren't, we aren't comparing ourselves to one another. We are to compare ourselves to Jesus. And when we do, we all fall short. And that means that we all need a deliverer because sin destroys, but God delivers. So as we look at this text, what we're going to see is a faithful father. This is God, our father, that produces a fruitful follower. And this is Jacob, the main player of the story. But I want you to see that Jacob's fruit isn't always spiritually right. And as we walk through the story, we're going to see some of the fruit that Jacob bears is fruit of the consequence of bad decision making. And so what I think is our big takeaway today is, and I'll put it here on the screen before I get into my final decision, is this, following God's way, despite unseemly circumstances, requires principled patience. I'm going to explain what that means here. But when we follow God's way, despite the unseemly circumstances around us, we will be required to follow principled patience. Now, you understand what patience means? It's, it can be translated, or, or we could say a synonym of that is self-control. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And so we need the Spirit's aid to produce principled patience in our lives. We need to trust by faith our faithful father, father to produce proper fruit. And so today, uh, and you've already read that slide, but that's, we're going to ask this question, how does this narrative highlight the need to follow God's way with principled patience despite unseemly circumstances, knowing that it is God who secures our future? I mean, is not that the point of this whole seed discussion? Adam and Eve bear a son, Seth. Seth bears a son, Enoch, who bears a son, uh, Noah, or Lamech, then Noah, who bears a son, 
Shem, who bears a son, Terah, who bears a son, Abraham, who bears a son, Isaac, who bears a son, Jacob. This seed is the promised deliverer. But it comes from sloppy, messy, sinful lives. And what we end up finding is that the deliverer himself will not be a sinner. Because the deliverer must be sinless in order to pay for the sin of all sinners and crush the serpent's head. But the deliverer, who is fully God and fully man, who is sinless himself, would be born of grief and sorrow and would be of a lineage of sinners with all the hurt and pain and suffering that you could possibly imagine. I and mean, we've already seen, uh, and we will see later on in this lineage, we're going to find out today specifically that one of Jacob's wives bears both the Levite clan and the Judean clan, Judah, Levi and Judah. That's correct. She actually has eight. She and her handmaiden have eight of the 12 sons. And in God's providence, we'll find that she becomes the preferred one, even though she isn't the preferred one from her husband's eyes. And there's so many truths and applications we can draw for that, uh, from that uh, in way of our principled patience for women and for men. And we'll make some, we'll draw some things out here in a minute. So last week we saw that although the consequences of sin are great, we can trust in God's faithfulness and revel in God's grace. In today's narrative, we will see that God sanctifying Jacob, God sanctifies Jacob despite his unseemly circumstances. And then Jacob must learn principles to put into practice. And we must learn principles to put into practice. God sanctifies Jacob. And this story is a messy, sloppy story of a man who, uh, who we will probably identify in many ways as a go-getter, as a bootstrap kind of guy. And as we look at the story, we're meant to see him that way. But even that character, that personality, must yield in complete trust and faith on the sovereign God whose will is perfectly enacted in heaven and on earth. Now, I, I believe the stage is set then. Um, I believe the stage is set here at the end of chapter 28 for Jacob to really, uh, you know, there's two ways to look at this. Jacob obeys mom. Mom convinces dad that his idea of fleeing to Haran is a good one. But what we find is Jacob and Jacob Laban Rachel, okay, Jacob Laban Rachel is actually a flip, an inversion. If you're Star Trek fans, it's a mirror universe kind of idea, okay, of the Isaac unnamed servant, Rebecca, or Isaac, uh, or Isaac representative, unnamed servant, Rebecca um, Nahor, okay? So the Isaac or which is basically unnamed servant Rebecca Nahor story is flipped when you see this next story in front of us. And I'm going to showcase it in a few ways. Now, because uh, chapters 29 and 30 are massive, and I know the most important thing I ever say is what Scripture already says, I, I'm not, I, I hate to say this, I'm not going to take the time to read all of it today because my time is already shortened. We started very late today and went a little long already. So um, regardless of that, I need to get you out on in a timely fashion. So I won't have a chance to read all of chapters 29 and 30, but I'm going to read a good portion of it. And what we see here is this truth, following God's way despite unseemly circumstances, requires principled patience. And if you'll bear with me as we set the stage and then we hit some highlights of the story, I will give you some principles to live by. So let's look at the first one. Um, first, we're going to see that God's sanctification requires us to reckon with our own nature. Okay, And we're really going to see that in chapters 29 and 30. And we're going to see that in two. So I'm going to break that down into two categories. So point one has two subpoints. Point two has just one point. Okay. So technically, I have two points today, but there's subpoints under this first one. 
So bear with me as we break it down. God's sanctification, that is his growth in godliness, our progressive transformation from a sinner to a saint, uh, our change to be more and more like Jesus throughout our entire lives, the Old Testament method of God's renewal of the inner man, uh, this sanctification requires us to reckon with our nature. Now, the word reckon is not a word that you and I use very often unless you grew up in eastern North Carolina like me. And when you grew up in eastern North Carolina, it was used in a very different way than the Bible uses it. Well, I reckon we ought to go down to the store. We're out of milk. Well, I reckon we ought to shake them chickens because they ain't been bearing a bunch of eggs. Well, I reckon it's time to eat them chickens because they ain't been giving us some eggs. Well, I reckon I ought to go repair the electricity because the power's out. What, that's not what Scripture means when it means reckon. It's more of an accounting. Okay? Uh, Paul would use it judicially in Romans chapter 6 when he says, Reckon yourselves indeed dead to sin and alive to God. In other words, there is a reckoning in our lives and that reckoning requires us to take full note or to, to make a record of who we really are in our nature and who we need to be when we accept God's nature. Okay? Paul would put it this way to the Corinthian believers. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when we receive Christ, we exchange our sin for his righteousness. That external imputation of righteousness is exchanged for our sin. We give him the filthy rags of our sin nature. He bore uh, the wrath of God on the cross for all sin, for all sinners, for all time. And he satisfied, that is the propitiation, he propitiated the wrath of God for all sin, for all time. And whosoever may come to him can have their sins reckoned before God and can exchange it for righteousness. I think God is coming to Jacob and God is warning Jacob, but he's also giving Jacob a blessing. He's saying at the end of 29, Jacob, or 28, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. You are the seed of promise. Now, I can't say whether Jacob should have stayed or gone. I have a personal opinion. I think probably, this is my personal opinion, it would have been far better for Jacob to have stayed and not have gone. Because the whirlwind he reaps in his personal go get him, pull him up by his bootstraps theology uh, really becomes devastating later on in his relationship. But God in his sovereign plan allows for that. God in his sovereign plan, uh, no matter what the unforeseen and, and uh, uncomely circumstances are, God in his sovereign plan will bring to pass his sovereign will. But our sin will reap a whirlwind of hurt with people around us. So, regardless of my opinion, Jacob goes, Jacob leaves. And what we find here is that comparative, that parallel in verses uh, chapter 29 uh, and following, um, Jacob looks and sees a well. What did, what did uh, the unnamed servant see when he gets to Padanaram? He sees a well. So there's a parallel, right? The unnamed servant prays and worships God. And he, he recognizes that God divinely prepared him in this seven-month journey to receive God's divine blessing. Jacob doesn't pause in worship. There's a difference there. There's a contrast there. Uh, the unnamed servant is the guest in the land, and the unnamed servant receives the blessing of someone watering him, his camels and providing water for him. Jacob shows his masculinity and his manhood, his bootstrap ideology, and he takes the stone off the well and he waters everybody else. Totally opposite. Okay? Uh, Rebecca recounting the unnamed servant's gifts. So the unnamed servant comes with a myriad of wealth, high volume, gold, and uh, camels laden with all kinds of, of wealth that gives, that's given to Rebekah's family, to Nahor and to Laban, because Laban shows up in that story, right? 
In this instance, Jacob shows up with what? The shirt on his back. He's got nothing. Total contrast. Yes, God has promised to bless him, but maybe Jacob is usurping or, or following his own leading here instead of following God's leading. And so what we find in this exchange then um, is a total reversal, a flip of, the, of, of this pattern. Um, Jacob kisses Rachel, verse 11, lifts up his voice and weeps. Um, Ra- Jacob uh, tells Rachel who he was, so he just kisses this stranger. I mean, it's not a stranger to him, but she's a, he's a stranger to her. He doesn't even tell her why he's kissing her until after. So what we find in then is this pattern in verse 14. Laban says to him, surely, so they go to Laban, they embrace, they kiss. Uh, Laban says to him, surely your bone and my bone and flesh and my flesh. He stays with him for a month. So we have a month-long reception for Jacob who is penniless. Then there becomes in chapter, verse 15 and following chapter 29, we find Jacob's reckoning beginning. And that's what I would see in verses 1 to 30. Jacob is a man who has decided, I am going to do my thing. I am going to go pursue this blessing. God promised to bless me, so I am going to go work for it. And work he does. Uh, Some of the commentators will tell you, if you read this, that Jacob somehow was supernaturally endowed with the Holy Spirit's power to remove the stone that multiple shepherds couldn't move. Um, I don't have a problem with that, that interpretation. It's not necessarily in the text, but uh, you will find in this opening foray of verses that there's a whole bunch of shepherds waiting to roll the stone back because it's likely a monstrous beast of a stone and it takes multiple people, and they're also patiently waiting for the rest of the shepherds to show up. In essence, they're waiting, waiting for Rachel. In the first story, when uh, the unnamed servant goes and sees the well, Rebecca shows up instantly. She's the first person that shows up. Here, Jacob has to wait for her, albeit impatiently. Jacob shows how manly he is and removes the stone by himself. You know, God exercises his sovereignty in the first story. Jacob exercises or flexes his muscles in the second story. Are you seeing the contrast here? And, and I think the point I'm, I'm, that the narrator is trying to make is God promised to bless Jacob, but Jacob is going out there and, and attempting to grab that blessing, uh, perhaps despite or in spite of God. And, and what we see is an internal struggle here, and God is trying to patiently move or, or uh, reconcile his servant and, and bring his servant to a reckoning. And what do I mean by a reckoning? A record or an account keeping with who he really is. So I realize that this, this quote sermon this morning is different than a lot of the messages that I preach to you. Instead of giving you propositional truth, it's very much more inductive. And I've been telling you a story, and it is warm in here, guys. I, I don't know about you. It is warm in here. I'm going to take my jacket off. Um, the problem is I'm probably going to start hitting the, the microphone cord without my jacket that kind of holds the microphone cord up. Um, but I'm sorry if, if you are warm and sleepy. I am warm and sleepy as well. Uh, so as we look at the story, let us be reminded, though, that this story is God calling Jacob to reckon with who he is. Did, did God reckon with Jacob in the dream? God introduced to Jacob who he is. Jacob doesn't know who he is yet. He knows who God is. He doesn't know himself well. And what he is going to be confronted with is the fruit of his decision-making, the fruit of his family's decision-making that is going to come to slap him in the face and get his attention. And sometimes um, God will chasten those whom he loves to get our attention. Does that make sense? The author of Hebrews, when discussing Esau, in fact, using Esau as a negative example in Hebrews chapter 12, would say regarding chastening of children, 
real, true sons of God versus the word that's used there in the King James and the New King James is bastards or illegitimate children. That's the word. I'm not swearing in the pulpit. That's what it says. The idea of someone who is illegitimate versus someone who is legitimate, that the difference is the illegitimate are never chastened because they're outside of God's love, because they willfully choose not to accept the loving gift of Jesus who, who God lovingly gave to us for our redemption. They're not sons. They're illegitimate. But he says this in Hebrews 12, all chastening for the present seems to be grievous, right? Or chastening is not joyous, but grievous. But afterward, chastening yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now that's an oxymoron, right? Chastening yields peace. And yet, chastening in Jacob's life will eventually yield peace. Now, I don't have time today, and I, I, I actually did think about preaching all the way through Jacob's life today and getting to the next time he meets God and he gets the name Israel because that's when he wrestles with God. Jacob spends 20 years reckoning with himself and, and recognizing who he is in his nature, and Jacob eventually yields himself to Yahweh, the creator God of the universe, and Yahweh blesses Jacob, but boy, does he have consequences. God changes his name to prince with God, Israel, and indeed he has 12 princes. But boy, did he suffer and did he make his family suffer. So we won't be able to get there fully today. But in Jacob's reckoning, we've already contrasted between Isaac's servant uh, interaction with Rebecca and J Jacob's interaction with Rachel. Um, this, uh, we, we see the weight of the stone and the determination of Jacob to reset his own destiny, turn over a new leaf. We see this comparing and contrasting in the story uh, between Jacob's interaction with Esau and Laban's interaction with Jacob. So back in the early story, we find uh, Jacob interacting with Esau. He knows that his brother is a contemptible man. He knows that his brother has passionate appetites. And he also knows, based on the truth that his mother has told him from birth, that he is to be the younger, is supposed to be the blessed one, is supposed to uh, have the birthright. So instead of waiting for the birthright, he offers Esau the opportunity to give away his birthright. And of course, the text clearly says it's Esau's problem. So I'm not saying Jacob is a bad guy for doing this, but again, we see Jacob's personality. He's a go-getter. God said this, I'm going to go get it. God says this is mine, I'm going to grab it. I'm going to work for it. He hasn't been patiently waiting for God. He's been impulsively going. And this will reap consequences in his life. Because guess what happens? Okay, let's look at the, well, I'm not going to read it, but look at the rest of the story of, of, of chapter 29, verses 15 to, to 30. Jacob says to Laban, or Laban says to Jacob, hey, I don't want you to work for free, so let's make a deal. What are we doing? Um, I will work, I'll have you work. Jacob says, you know what? I saw your daughter. She's beautiful in form. She's shapely and lovely. And by the way, there's a di distinction in descriptions here. It depends on which translation you're using. Uh, Leah is, is either weak in the eyes, depending on the translation, or gentle in the eyes, depending on the context and translation. What we find of Leah, I'm going to argue, okay, and it, it'll come out in later, uh, later messages. I'm going to argue that Leah's personality was a submissive, yielded, gentle personality. Rachel was a lot more like Esau. Rachel was a lot more, she was a woodsy kind of gal. She was a shepherdess. She was willing to take control and take charge. We find that happening, don't we? She even steals, she even says, my daddy hasn't done me right, and I'm going to take his household idols because those household idols are a clear sign that I am the firstborn and I am the favored one and I deserve my inheritance. Was she the firstborn? No, Leah was the firstborn. So Rachel was very much like Esau in that sake. Leah was much more mild and, in fact, perhaps more like Jacob. Leah doesn't mean that Leah wasn't pretty. It just that means that her, the characteristics or the attributes of beauty were the inner 
meek and quiet spirit, that perhaps her spirit, her attitude, that wasn't very attractive to Jacob. What was attractive to Jacob? The way Rachel looked. And what we find is these two sisters, firstborn and secondborn, are pitted against each other, just like two brothers were pitted against each other in the previous chapter. Jacob is the one that God says is going to be blessed, but Jacob doesn't see it happening soon enough, so Jacob is participating in the process of receiving his blessing. This is his personality. So he says, I'll serve you for seven years. And the, the script, the text tells us, you know, seven years seemed to him like a day. No big, no big deal. Seven years. And so, um, you know, what happens? Well, it says all the men were gathered. Laban gathers all the men for a big feast. It's a wedding feast. We know based on the, the past context and text that women brides were given a full veil. We would only have shown this portion of their face. Everything else would have been covered. Um, I still don't think that's a legitimate reason for Jacob not knowing that Leah's in his tent instead of Rachel. Um, unless during this time of revelry, Jacob imbibed a little too much. Now that is reading into the text. I, I'm not a I don't want to do that, but I'm saying something is happening here that is inexplicable to the, the, the modern reader. And it's probably a lot of revelry was going on he gets his wife in a dark tent, wakes up in the morning, and it's not his wife. It's not who he thought. But guess what? It's now his wife. And so instead of stopping there, this is why Jacob's reckoning to me is so clear in this text. Instead of accepting God's sovereign plan and saying, Leah is my wife, I will take from the Lord and I will trust that the blessing of God is coming through Leah. He refuses to accept Leah. In fact, the word, uh, as you look at the text, it says, um, it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, the word for unloved is really strong in Hebrew. Could be translated hated. Can you imagine that, ladies? Wake up the day after your wedding and you find your, your husband hates you. And he loves your sister. Now, I know our, our culture, the context, that's perverse. It seems perverse and despicable. Well, that emotion of perverse despicableness should continue in your heart. Because this is not God's best for Jacob. If we were just to look at the result of his relationship with Leah, what would we find? Leah bears him Levi and Judah. Who are Levi and Judah? the priests of God, and the king of God, the king's family. Could God have given Leah eight more or six more? And the answer is absolutely. God could have given her all of them. Asher and Naphtali and, and uh, you know, go through the list. He could have given them all. Joseph and Benjamin all could have come through Leah, but no. Leah, Rachel, and Jacob all have their own plan. And here in the process of this despairing relationship, they have to reckon with who they really are. Jacob has to reckon with himself. And, and we, we will find that his story isn't complete and really not even complete till the, at the end of chapter 30. If you go through the whole chapter 30 now, so there's this break from chapter 29, verse 31 to chapter 30, verse 24, that deals with... Um, deals with the ladies, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through that here in a second. Um, so let me give you some principles from this first section. What are some principles that we can learn from Jacob? Again, this is an in inductive message, so hopefully you haven't gotten lost in the history. Let's get to the practical 2023, okay? First principle, running from your past will never erase its consequences. Jacob is fleeing from his brother for his life. Jacob brings nothing to the table of value he has nothing, but he expects everything from Laban. He's a prince of God, after, after all, in his mind. But running from his past will never erase its consequences. I'm going to admit something. Maybe I shouldn't admit this. I'm going to admit this. Yeah, I think I will. I have been pastoring for 22 years. 
15 of them are here at Crossroads 6.0. Six churches that meet in the same location in the same name over 15 years. Uh, because the church isn't a place, it's people, right? And there's been a cycle of people that have come in and come out over the years. Over the years, there have been several people that have come to me and shared with me uh, of their journey of church jumping, right? And that's okay. I'm, that is not, I'm not judging the church jumping part because you've got to go where God leads you and God will lead you to the place where you can best serve, okay? That's not the point of it. But there's been a few of those people in that process that have told me the reason why they left and they just spewed all of these negative problems about this person and that person and everything becomes about all of these horrible things that these people did and they make themselves to be St. Paul in the process. Aren't you so glad to receive me in this assembly because I'm amazing and all these other places are terrible and the people in these other places are terrible, but I'm amazing and I don't know why they didn't keep me around because I'm the best. Right? You know, 1985 Karate Kid, you're the best. Anyway, uh, right? So, so that mentality, are you tracking with me? And generally speaking, the love of every shepherd pouring and investing in them. And when they leave, they stab the hardest and the deepest. Jacob was this kind of person until God began to change him. Jacob was the kind of man that was grabbing all he could, grasping onto everything he could in this in the story. Now, I hope you understand, again, I'm not trying to compare Esau with Jacob. There is no comparison. Esau was a fornicator, a profane man, outside of God's blessing, three wives, never repents, never restored. Jacob has a growth pattern, okay? I, I know I'm saying all the negatives about Jacob, but I, I want you to understand, Jacob is the man of blessing. But he ran from his past, but it won't erase consequences. Listen, if you are that kind of person, you've been running from place to place, people to people, and you think all of the stuff that's happened and all the reasons why you've been running is somebody else's fault, stop in your tracks today. God is requiring a reckoning. Know that the problems that might be pinching you to this moment are God saying, my child, I love you. Stop running. Stay where you are. Serve right where you are. You're in a body that loves you. You're in a church that cares for you with shepherds that love you and want to feed you and protect you and guard you from the enemy outside and within. Not a perfect pastor. Neither is Pastor Stephen. You're not going to find a perfect pastor or perfect pastors here. But we do love you and we do care about you. And this is the place God has you. So don't run. Stay and be fed. Refusing to learn from your past failures can doom you to repeat them. If Jacob refused to learn from his past failures, who knows how this story would have looked. He did carry the consequence of his past failures later on into his life. He did show the favoritism that was shown to him by his mom and, and countered that favoritism with his son Joseph. And we see how that nasty event turns out, although God means it for good, even though his brothers mean it for evil. And then finally, your own unyielded resolve and ingenuity cannot accomplish God's work God's way. Did you hear that? Your own unyielded resolve and ingenuity cannot accomplish God's work God's way. By the way, when I gave you that admitted story, I wasn't thinking of anybody in here. I hope you know that. I want you to know that sometimes I need to say what I'm thinking so that you know what I'm thinking. Nobody in this room fit the bill of the first illustration I used, okay? Just let me get that out there, all right? But when we, un, uh, when we are our own unyielded resolve, when we have resolved in an unyielding manner to get what God promised us in our way, we are doomed to repeat the past. We will continue to uh, escape the pressures of the present in thinking that it will erase the consequences of bad decisions, and it won't. This is a reckoning that Jacob must have. This is the text driving Jacob to a reckoning. The narrator is telling this story so that we can see Jacob is being pinched. And, the, and what we'll see in the story is Laban changes his wa wages ten times. He says, you can get the speckled 
of the, of the flock. Uh, you know what? The speckled are, are, are too many now. You can get the spotted of the flock. Oh, you know what? The spotted ones, they're too robust. You can get the striped of the, of the flock. And he comes up with a great elaborate way to somehow figure out how they will birth spotted, speckled, and striped, right? He, and the, the text tells us, now I have no, I'm not a shepherd. I don't know if breeding sheep in front of stripes of birch wood that are, you know, strips of birch wood in front of a feeding trough, peeling the skin in certain patterns is going to make them breed and bear ewes of this type. I, I have no idea. I suspect the answer is no. I suspect the point of this is that God is laughing at Jacob's ingenuity and saying, Jacob, I'm not blessing you because you're so stinking smart. I'm blessing you because I'm God. I'm God, and you are the child of blessing, and I've got a great plan for your life. So, Mr. Hardhead, would you reckon with yourself and recognize you need me? And eventually he does recognize that. All right, so let's go on to Jacob's wife's reckoning. Um, again, let me just give you the principles. You see this, uh, these, this uh, bride wars going on, right? And uh, Rachel becomes bridezilla, and Leah responds in kind. I mean, they literally bargain for their husband over fruit. It gets that bad. I made a deal with my sister because her son found mandrakes, and you are sleeping with me tonight, buddy. And I don't mean to be crass, but that's exactly what the text says. Exactly what it says. And Jacob is a willing participant in this ridiculousness. So, some principles to learn through this text. And, I, and I, I have some other things I would like to say. I don't have time to say them. I believe the picture of Leah and Rachel and the rivalry is, is a masterful picture of God's care for those who are victims, for those who are the abused. Uh, again, I'm going to throw that out there. I think Leah was literally hated, as the text says. And God transfers his love and showers his blessings on her to bring her to a place to know that even in the midst of horrible circumstances, she is loved. And God blesses her despite the hostility of her sister and her husband. And eventually she does, this gets flipped on its head, and she does become the favored one. And I don't have time today, but I'm going to tell you, if you go back through your Bible and you look in the footnotes of your Bible or in a, you know, an alternate translation, you're going to find each one of the kids get na gets named for whatever is going on. But Leah is the one who's praying to God. Rachel is the one who's manipulating her husband. Leah prays, and then she receives this son as a blessing and then names him as such. Rachel essentially finally comes to that spot after 20 years of fighting with her sister that she understands Joseph is a blessing, and she claims she names him Joseph because his name essentially means that he's going to give me more. And she doesn't, in essence, get Benjamin. So even Leah and Rachel, God is sanctifying them as well in this process. And though Rachel starts out as the favored one by her husband, I think there becomes more equality toward the end. And if I could just throw this out there, if you feel like a Leah, God loves you. God knows. God knows what you have endured. God knows the suffering that you've experienced emotionally or physically. And God cares about you. And the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. God cares. God is keeping track. And the righteous judge will do just that. Amen. And so, friends... There's more to be said about this rivalry between the women and more to be said about God's grace toward both of them. But let me give you the principles. Prayer and patience is a powerful means of heart change which yields divine rewards. When you endure the struggle of your life in a sin-cursed world with prayer and spiritual endurance, patience, it is a powerful means of heart change God will use the difficult circumstances of your life if you will yield to him in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to produce patience. He will yield to you divine rewards. And though your rewards may not be as prevalent as six sons like Leah has, they will be eternal as an eternity 
with God in his heaven. The second thing here, second principle from this, uh, these um, wives reckoning is manipulation brings heartache and unintended consequences. Manipulation brings heartache and unintended consequences. And I realize that there's, there's so many other applications that we can make here. Um, the Holy Spirit hopefully is making some for you. You all know your own family dynamic. And if your family is like a normal human family, it's, it's just as messed up as everybody else's. And your family that has all kinds of messed up problems with all kinds of issues, um, your family doesn't need to be a family that manipulates. It needs to be a family that yields. You need to be a leader in your home and your extended family and trust that God can change and sanctify. That is a powerful principle from this text. The final and concluding thought here, God's sanctification rewards based on his divine nature. In other words, God's rewards aren't necessarily based on your actions or my actions. They're based on his nature and his character. Now, we get the consequences of our sin, right? Um, the New Testament principles are clear. What you sow, you will also reap. You'll reap in same kind as you sow. You'll reap in greater, greater quantity than what you sow, and you'll reap after you sow. To be sure, the Galatians sowing principles are clear. We will reap in due season. So we will reap sin if we sow to the flesh. But we will also reap spiritual reward if we sow to the Spirit, Paul says to the Galatian believers. And in this instance, you see God's sovereignty hovering over the life and the choices of Jacob, Laban, Rachel, Leah, Zilpah, and Bilhah. And God is sovereign and he rewards based on his divine nature, not based on our value or what we deserve or earn. Because we all deserve separation from God. All of us. We're all sinners. And our merit does not come in ourselves. It comes in our Savior. And so what are some principles here? Following God's way despite unseemly circumstances requires principled patience. That is the main, that is the main application that we've been making today. Following God's way despite unseemly circumstances required, requires principled patience. Now, let me just throw this out there. Um, Laban, I'm not going to talk a lot about him, but he is a main player in this. Laban feels really gypped. In his own twisted thinking, Jacob robs him of his wealth. In actuality, Jacob robs him of his wealth. Not only does Jacob take everything, all the strong of the flocks and the herds and the camels and all the fat of his produce, but his household idols were actually his history of family lineage. And he would have been a laughingstock to his community that he lost his household idols, and he would have had to rebuild and pay some craftsman, some local artisan, to make them again. And it would have been expensive and costly. Laban uh, does actually, uh, is the recipient of a burden because Jacob is God's blessed one. So another principle here in way of God's sovereign care, God's promises are available to all who will patiently await them. Even Laban does get blessed. You know, Laban has a bunch of grandkids, doesn't he? He has 12 grandsons and a daughter, a granddaughter. He is part of Israel's history. He is interwoven into the family of God. His daughters and their servants become historically the people of God. God's promises are available to all who patiently await them. Sometimes God's best comes only to those who wait for it. Sometimes God's best comes only to those who wait for it. When we usurp God's timing and jump ahead of God, we get what we create, what we make. And then the easiest and most ingenious way is not always God's way. Jacob is a brilliant man. But the ease and ingenuity by which he intends to operate here is not always God's way. Now, I'm going to hopefully rescue Jacob from your minds if you think Jacob's a really bad dude. Hopefully, as we get through the rest of the narrative, you're going to find that Jacob is sanctified. 
He does make a turn for the better, and though he always suffers the consequences of the favoritism of his family that trickles into his own heart, um, he does actually, he is restored in the end, and he does actually have a beautiful nomenclature, and he does have a faith that follows God. So we're going to see that through the rest of Jacob's story. So I hope you don't walk out of here and send me an email saying, Pastor, you, you really threw Jacob under the bus today. Well, that wasn't my intention. The, the narrative showcases the sloppy, messy nature of all the sinners in the story, and not a single one of them looks better than the other. They all have mud in their eye, every one of them. And guess what? We do too. We do too. Now, one final thought of conclusion besides this, besides this kernel of truth behind me. Who is this story given to? Think about that. Remember, Moses is writing to the children of Israel who have just exited Egypt. He is telling them the story of their great, 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 great grandfathers. They're all children of Levi, Simeon, Judah, right? They're all children of Asher and Gad and Naphtali, right? Every single one of them of Manasseh and Ephraim and Benjamin. So they are looking at this story and they are seeing the sloppy, messy, crazy decisions that their forebearers made. 400 years after the fact, they're seeing a troop of 2 million plus people. Did God fulfill his promise to Abraham through Isaac and Jacob? They are the fruit of it. So I want you to think about that in conclusion. Perhaps as it was for Jacob, there are difficult people in our lives. Laban-type nemesis, harsh people, judgmental people, deceitful people, untruthful people, arrogant people. And we cry for relief. But it just may be as one commentator suggested, that though through them we take a long look at ourselves, it may be that some of those traits characterize us and that other people may be part of God's means of discipling us. One thing is for sure, the commerce on behalf of our souls will never cease until we are with the Son of Man. And for this grace, we must bless His name. With the birth of Joseph, Joy almost leaps from the page. God has taken away Rachel's reproach. She called her son Joseph. Literally, it means, may he add. May the Lord add to me another son, verse 24 of chapter 30. And indeed, God would one day do just that with Benjamin, son number 12. How fascinating this freshly written section must have been at the Exodus when every man and woman could find his or her ancestral father and mother in this narrative. And how fascinating to see that human determination and cleverness would not, could not accomplish the work of God. In fact, God comes to the lowly as he did first to Leah in her humble condition and then to Rachel in her lowliness too, after 20 years of barrenness. Listen, friends, God comes to the lowly. And this week, as we gather together with family and friends and our motley crew of messed up people that are all around us that we call family, and we gather to give thanks to God. Let us not forget that it is in our lowly estate that God finds us as the messenger of help and hope. It was to lowly shepherds on a beautiful clear night in the appointed time at the appointed day that God Almighty would send a troop of his messengers to proclaim peace on earth and goodwill to men. It was to a lowly, innocent Young woman, a virgin of Israel, betrothed to a man named Joseph. May he, he, may he add, Joseph, that God would send forth his one and only son as an eternal gift. Oh, not rulers, not born in a palace, not in Jerusalem, but in the backwater small town of Nazareth. The son of David, the rightful heir of Solomon, named Joseph, had the humble difficult job of a mason or a carpenter. You see, God sends forth his love to the lowly. Are you going to be a man or a woman like Leah in your lowliness or Rachel in your lowliness or Jacob reckoning with God and realizing I need to be humble 
because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I want to follow God and his way. I want God to develop in me patience. I don't want to be an Esau who pursues the self-gratification of instant nowism to the loss of eternal damnation. I want to be a man or a woman that waits patiently on the Lord. Again, I say, wait, Scripture says.